This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Stock Doctor. Bundy's called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Well, Rob Frost, thanks very much for coming back on Talk Your Book. You're the doyen of microcap investing in Australia, so wrapped to have you back on. I thought maybe we could start by, I know you just got nominated for a, a new award and you've had a huge uh, current financial year. Maybe you could talk us through both of those items. Just uh, put Chris on the marketing team, obviously. But um, no, thanks. Thanks for those kind words. Um, yeah. So the micro cap funds, obviously, um, one that's um, near and dear to my heart. Even though I run a small cap fund as well, I find the micro cap space particularly interesting. And I thought we could do something a little bit differently today. I know there's a couple of stocks you want to get to at the end, which we can um, walk through and people can put on their watch list. But I thought it might just be good at the start dig a little bit deeper into both what microcap investing is to you and a little bit about the framework you use at OC Funds Management. So maybe we could start with um, just defining what, my, what a microcap stock is, uh, in your opinion. Interesting question in the sense that there's no, there's no real formal definition of where a microcap starts and a small cap starts and where a nano cap. I mean, each investor has their own perception of micro. We consider it any stock with a market capitalization of under $350 million when we make the initial investment into the company. So, um, you know, anything above that, we, we um, purely look at for our small cap fund and anything under 350, we consider micro. So, um, you know, what we're trying to do is have a, a sensible cutoff so we don't become a, a small cap by default as the fund grows in size. And, we want to keep the fund small and nimble and, um, you know, as you know, you need to be able to have the liquidity, be able to move it in and out of these stocks. So keeping it um, to, a, you know, these smaller companies makes it easier to, to um, get in and out and hopefully make good, good profits to your investors. And why the attraction for micro caps? A um, number of things attract me to, to the micros in particular. I think obviously being small, there's, there's much greater potential for growth. They're, they're usually earlier in their evolution as a business. So easier to grow your profit from say five to, to $20 million and from, you know, hundred to, to 200 million, for instance. Um, usually really good investor alignment in that space. So you, you find a lot of founder led businesses and um, key management who've got material stakes in the company. So you're really aligning yourself with, with the guys who are running the business, which is something we really like when we're investing. Also, there tends to be less analyst coverage or less, um, less people trawling over the space. So um, in that sense, it can be less efficient from a, a pricing perspective and you know, really easy, much easier to find companies that you, you are materially undervalued. Um, you know, whereas if you, if you went and look at BHP, it'd be hard to access the, the MD and there's you know, the whole market's looking at it. But if you go and look at some of the smaller businesses like an AMA group or, you know, um, Cedarwood's property, there's not many people covering it. And if you pick the right ones, you can, you can make a lot of money. I mean, guys like Cochlear, um, Domino's, REA, even more recently, Afterpay was a, a microcap um, when it started out. And all those companies started off in the microcap space. And um, if you were smart enough to hold on to them the whole way, which I certainly haven't been, but um, you could have made an absolute fortune. So really good potential for capital gains if you get it right. I remember looking at Afterpay at $1.50 at the IPO and decided it was overpriced. <laughs> <laughs> I'm well and truly in the same boat there. Um, 
Talk to me about your investment process. I know you've got a really clearly articulated framework that you use. Can you share with me uh, things around perhaps a checklist that you use and scoring yeah. system or weighting system and, and how perhaps some uh, everyday investors could, could use that for their investing process? Yeah. Chris, I think, it's, I think it's important for people to understand why they're investing in a stock. Um, so we have sort of three buckets that we invest in. So we have our, our core fundamental investments, which are really profitable, cash flow positive, buy hold. We've got a smaller sleeve, which we call the, the concept innovator businesses that have to have a, a, a pathway to profitability within five years. Um, and we have some shorter term event driven um, yeah. opportunities, which can be around placements and IPOs. But what we really try and focus on at OC is the, the core fundamental section. So these businesses have to be profitable and cash flow positive. Um, we screen out complex opaque businesses that we, we don't understand. So what that really means is trying to invest in your circle of competence as, um, you know, um, Charlie Munger, who's Warren Buffett's business partner, calls it your circle of competence. You know, if you understand a business and, and know a little bit about the industry, you're obviously going to have a better ability to value it than perhaps if I was to look at a biotech stock and have no scientific background, it's more akin to speculation. Um, so try and invest in um, businesses you understand. And um, also for us, we have to have accessible, trustworthy management. So, so that's sort of our initial screen for um, emerging companies. And, and then after that, if they pass that initial um, screen, we sort of have a checklist of about six things and six areas that we assess the companies and um, give them a, a score out of 100. And um, the higher the score, um, all things being equal, typically the higher the weighting we're, we're prepared to hold them in the portfolio. So things like management, acumen, size of the market, perhaps historical mm -hmm. results, I'd assume they're part of the, the six things that go into that bucket. What else are you looking at to decide if something's worthwhile investment? Yeah, so you spot on management. Um, management's the first thing we look at. And, you know, these categories are not mutually exclusive because if you've got good management, you tend to have a good operating history. But... Um, we start with management because particularly in micro caps, uh, you tend not to have the deep layers of management that you get at the bigger end of the market. So um, the success or otherwise of these businesses can be heavily dependent on the quality of the guys who are driving, driving the car. So um, we look at who they are, what their track record is. Um, we look at their incentivization schemes, like, you know, we like them to be aligned with us as investors and, you know, whether they act ethically in the interest of the companies or whether they're, you know, really empire builders who don't own much equity and just want to build a really big company and don't really care about generating shareholder wealth. So, yeah, management's really important. We look at the actual business model itself. Um, is it proven sustainable and something we can understand? Um, again, coming back to if it's opaque or um, reliant on a few key suppliers who can um, pretty quickly um, pivot to another business um, doesn't score very well. Um, we look at things like the operating history of the business, so how long it's been going for and um, the longevity and um, track record of growing profitability. I mean, obviously, if you've got a business that's been going for 10 years and growing its profits every year, it's better than the business that's up and down and perhaps an indication that's a bit more cyclical. Um, another thing we look at is the industry structure. So what sort of industry does it operate in and um, where is it an industry leader? So... Um, I guess at the moment, retail is very topical because there's been a big pivot to, to online. So if you're looking at a retailer, um, are they an old-fashioned bricks and mortar company like Meyer, 
that's structurally challenged perhaps wouldn't score as well as someone like a Kogan or a Temple and Webster where everyone's shopping at home and, you know, those businesses are very well positioned going forward. Um, we look at the, the company structure. So is it easy to understand? Does it have good governance? And we look at the financial track record. So things like cash conversion, whether it uses appropriate accounting policies, and things like that. And that all gets a score out of 100. And um, anything that scores under the threshold, we, we, we don't even do valuation work on Chris. We consider it too, too risky. And, um, you know, that's sort of our threshold test, um, those sort of categories. How do you weigh up things like, you know, you mentioned, say, Kogan there, who are, you know, I guess in some ways an Australian version of, of Amazon and just do, done brilliantly well throughout this period. They've got a huge tailwind in online shopping, which still has a way to catch up from Australia to the rest of the world. But on the other hand, that's priced in. You know, everyone knows that they're an industry leader for online shopping in Australia. How do you weigh up the, you know, sometimes backing the ugly red-headed sister that perhaps is a lot cheaper <laughs> than, than the industry leader that the whole world knows is um, has a huge tailwind at its back? Yeah, and I think that that um, more comes into it for us um, at the valuation level. So you have to have a certain quality of business to, to get through our, through our checklist because what we're trying to avoid is um, stocks where things can come from left field and just, um, you know, you have permanent loss of your investor's capital. So, you know, that's what I talk about when I'm talking about, say, a biotech that's going through a phase 3B trial and it misses on its primary endpoint and it goes down 80%. But, you know, I guess what you're talking about is, you know, a traditional bricks and mortar company like, I don't know, maybe a Katmandu versus a, a Kogan. Um, Katmandu may score lower on the risk assessment, but the valuation, we overlay the risk assessment with the valuation yeah. and the valuation of um, Upside and, and Katmandu might be, we might be trading at, say, a 50% discount to our our valuation so it will score a much higher score on the valuation part of the equation versus say a Kogan at the moment um, we still like Kogan but um, ironically or incidentally they're raising capital today um, so um, I think they've got an investor call on now so maybe maybe they think this price is overvalued too they're filling <laughs> up the coffers or, or perhaps they've got a lot of opportunity I, I'm not sure I'm having a chat to them after this call so uh, with yourself and what thematic what thematics, more broadly speaking, are exciting in the market at the minute? We're starting to look at some of the businesses that um, we think will perform well um, in the coming 12 months and perhaps have been sold down. So, um, you know, perhaps, you know, some of the, the ugly sisters that you were talking about that have, have really caught between the eyes. So one business like is AMA Group, which is um, the, the largest panel repair sh uh, shop in the country. They, they recently bought the Capital Smart Business from Suncorp and, um, you know, that business was aggressively sold down. Obviously, you know, a lot of businesses um, in that space shut and the cars are off the road and they've got quite a high debt level. So people were concerned that they're going to have to raise capital. And, um, you know, now with everyone out and about and afraid to catch public transport, yeah. um, there's more cars out there, more people are going to have car accidents. A lot of their less comp capitalised competitors are going to go broke. So we're looking at businesses like that that we think will could really prosper in the next 12 months, but um, perhaps haven't quite recovered to anywhere near the levels they were um, pre-pandemic. And just digging in a little deeper on AMA, I think that acquisition they bought from Suncorp is sort of key to, to that story. At the minute, they paid a really hefty price for it. But yeah. the, the revenue stream to have perhaps a, a little bit 
more steady for you know for 25 years and in, in some ways they've ordered cash flow. Do you maybe want to talk us through that acquisition more broadly and perhaps a little bit around some of the renegotiations that, that have been taking place there as well? Sure, absolutely, Chris. Um, I think it was it was a critical acquisition in the sense that if you look at what's happening on a global basis, there's a real move from the insurers to deal with corporatized um, panel repair. Uh, shops. So if you look at the US, it's dominated by a couple of big players and Boyd Group's one of the most successful listed businesses in the US over the last few years. Um, same dynamics played out in the UK and what the Capital Smart Acquisition allowed uh, AMA to do was to really dominate the domestic panel repair industry and make it very hard for private equity or anyone else to come in and build a, a big competitor to to AMA because you've got such a dominant market position. And what that means is for people like, um, you know, NRMA and um, Suncorp, they can do a deal with AMA, put all their cars through them. They don't have to deal with mum and dad panel shops and have individual deals. And obviously AMA can get much better scale advantages through um, paint supply and parts and, um, you know, econ economies of scale. and um, so it obviously works out better for the, for the insurers because they get a better quality product at a lower price and AMA, being the aggregator, gets um, you know, big scale benefits and, and guaranteed volumes um, from the insurers. So it's sort of a win-win. And you, you, you mentioned before that perhaps the, cut, the economy more broadly is starting to get stronger and starting to reflate, if you like. I think it's been a bit of an armrest between people that see a big deflation crisis coming, in, in which case a big pile of debt is just the most horrible thing you can possibly own. But if we do start to see inflation slowly tick up, that big pile of debt isn't isn't quite as dangerous as it seems if you've got a, a deflationary crisis on the horizon. Is that something you've been taking into consideration? Um, yeah, I mean, balance sheets obviously been front and centre where credit markets froze and... Um, you know, it's very hard for anyone to raise money in the debt markets unless you're, a, you know, prime, um, prime, um, highly rated business. So that sort of ruled out most micro caps. But, you know, obviously with the opening up of the economy, there, there are people like AMA who are sold down heavily on the back of the need to raise capital, you know, and with, with things opening up, they're, they're, they're going to increase their business significantly and people not catching public transport, um, you know, the likelihood of the need to do a raising's um, going down pretty rapidly, and um, we think that'll be reflected in the share price over over the, the short term, over the medium term, anyway. Yeah, and talk to me about another small cap, Viva Leisure Group, which um, yeah. doesn't sound like the most exciting small cap going around. It's obviously got some gym exposure. Talk me through a little bit about Viva Leisure and um, what you're seeing there that, that could could prove it to be an exciting investment. Yeah, so Viva Leisure was a, a gym business started in Canberra by, by um, two brothers. So Harry, the MD, sort of founded the business back in 2004. So it's 16-year heritage. Um, I remember walking away from a briefing one day um, and another fund manager going, oh, did you hear um, Ord Manette's trying to float a gym business based in Canberra? Sounds awful, but that's <laughs> the beauty about small caps and micro caps. You've got to, you've got to look under every rock because this is a fantastic um, business with great technology that's growing very rapidly, both organically and through acquisition. So, you know, it's gone from 30 odd um, 
clubs to three to sorry a hundred odd. It's got about seventy nine open now with twenty one grandfields on the way, growing very very rapidly. Um, got some incredible tech smarts to the business, so um, sort of differentiated from a lot of its peers. And if you think about gym businesses, there's not very high barriers to entry, but um, there's not very many um, exit mechanisms for owners as well. So Beaver's been able to upgrade its profit about three times in its first year of operations. It's growing its network very quickly. So if you get that sort of dynamic, um, the company's trading on a much higher PE multiple than what they're able to acquire business for. So you, you get a PE multiple arbitrage there. Yeah. Um, the greenfield sites they're operating and opening, they, they get the profitability within you know six to six weeks to two months. So um, very strong EPS growth story, and um, you know the industry itself is really struggling. If you if you look at the big player, which is owned by Quadrant, which you probably know, Fitness First and, and Good Life, um, they've got a lot of debt and really not growing very quickly at the moment. So so Viva's a very well-run business with good tech that's um, out there aggregating the industry and we think it's got a runway to um, grow its APS very strongly over the next couple of years and um, business we, we really like. And what did the current lockdown climate do to their, their share price? How much did it drop? <laughs> yeah, Charlie, it actually, um, you know what they say, one day rooster, next day feather duster, but um, the stock price went from $2.70 um, in February after it just upgraded its profit, um, it went down. I think it, we bought some stock at 70 cents at the wow. lows in the pandemic because there was a lockdown and people were thinking, well, no one's ever going to go to a gym to get again because these social distancing issues and, you know, they're, they're not going to have any revenue. So um, they did a fantastic job of keeping their members through that period. So they put most of them on suspension and, they did a digital membership, so they, they sent them, um, you know, workouts at home, hundreds of workouts that they could do at home. And they've opened back up. Um, they had 96,000 members pre-lockdown. And by the end of this month, and when all their gyms should be open again, I think as of about a week from now, they're going to have 90,000 members. So they've only lost about 6% of their members over that period, which is a terrific effort. And um, they had a big promotion over the long weekend that we just hadn't signed up another 1,000 members. So really innovative business that's, um, you know, growing. But it shows you that, um, you know, out of crisis comes opportunities. Unfortunately, you know, there's quite a few of them that got sold down aggressively that we didn't pick up. But um, we, we, we did buy some more Beaver Leisure over that period. You mentioned uh, the fact that they're a founder-led business. Do you think that founder-led businesses often get run differently to businesses that are, are being run by managers that perhaps don't have a lot of skin in the game? I think there's certainly an element of that. I think there's less of an inclination to try and empire build in a founder-led business because um, take Viva, um, where where Harry and, and his brother Angela, they own you know, circa 50% of the business. Um, what's important to them is profitable growth, EPS growth and share price appreciation because that's what's going to move the needle for them personally. <clears throat> Whereas if you've got professional management, they may not have much skin in the game, um, but if they can build a much bigger company by market capitalisation, so they might go out and make a whole lot of acquisitions that are not necessarily value-creating um, or EPS creative, but they might turn it into a billion-dollar company. You know, if you're a billion-dollar company, you can get probably convince your board to pay, pay you a higher salary and um, that sort of stuff. So um, 
you know, founder-led businesses tend to be intimately involved in the fabric of the business. They set the culture and because it is essentially their business. So, um, you know, I think particularly in the micro-cap space, um, it's something we, we really look towards. Very good, mate. Well, 19% up this financial year. Hopefully you can hold on to that for the uh, the remaining time till, till the year's over and uh, it can be obnoxious and arrogant to all the other fund managers out there, Frosty. Almost certain to have a couple of blowouts in the next couple of days now, Juddy. Thanks for that. <laughs> good, mate. Thanks very much for coming on. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Good to chat again. If you're interested in building your own investment process, make sure you check out Stock Doctor, the proud partner of Talk Your Book. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest.